0: Uh, I invite you to open up your Bibles to 1 Samuel chapter 15, and as you're making your way there, um, perhaps you caught something in Mark's prayer. Um, he mentioned Aiden Langan. Um, Aiden, if you want to stand up. Um, Aidan's uh, Sabrina's summer intern, um, so you'll be seeing Aiden around quite a bit this summer. His, uh, um, one of his primary jobs is to really get to know you, and so, so uh, he's I know he's looking forward to getting to know you and hearing your stories and serving you in a lot of different ways and assisting Sabrina. So please say hi to Aiden. So, welcome back from your freshman year of college, man. That's a great way to go into God's word with clapping. Uh, so uh, today we're at First Samuel chapter 15. We're wrapping up this uh, time of being in 1 Samuel for the past few months where we have been looking at Saul and, and Samuel's life, or Samuel and Saul, thinking proper uh, chronological order, because uh, Samuel is actually a book about spiritual awakening, where God is doing a new thing in God's people's life, where he, God is doing new things where he's... His word's coming to his people, and his people are being moved to repentance and obedience. And that's really where we're coming into uh, today. And so we're looking at 1 Samuel chapter 15, verses 10 through 35. Uh, You can follow along in your own Bibles or on the walls uh, behind me. And I'm reading from the Christian Standard uh, translation this morning. And this is God's word starting in verse 10. Then the word of the Lord came to Samuel. I regret that I made Saul king. For he has turned away from following me and has not carried out my instructions. So Samuel became angry and cried out to the Lord all night. Early in the morning, Samuel got up to confront Saul. But it was reported to Samuel, Saul went to Carmel where he set up a monument for himself. Then he turned around and went down to Gilgal. When Samuel came to him, Saul said, May the Lord bless you. I have carried out the Lord's instructions. And Samuel replied, Then what is this sound of sheep, goats, and cattle I hear? Saul answered, The troops brought them from the Amalekites and spared the best sheep, goats, and cattle in order to offer a sacrifice to the Lord your God. But the rest we destroyed. Stop, exclaimed Samuel. Let me, tell you about the, let me tell you what the Lord said to me last night. Tell me, he replied. Samuel continued, although you once considered yourself unimportant, have you not become the leader of the tribes of Israel? The Lord anointed you king over Israel and then sent you on a mission and said, go and destroy, go and completely destroy the sinful Amalekites. Fight against them until you have annihilated them. So why didn't you obey the Lord? Why did you rush on the plunder and do what was evil in the Lord's sights? But I did obey the Lord, Saul answered. I went on a mission the Lord gave me. I brought back King Agag of Amalek, and I completely destroyed the Amalekites. The troops took sheep, goats, and cattle from the plunder, the best of what was set apart for destruction, to sacrifice to the Lord your God at Gilgal. Then Samuel said, Does the Lord take pleasure in burnt offerings and sacrifices as much as in obeying the Lord? Look, to obey is better than sacrifice. To pay attention is better than the fat of rams. For rebellion is like the sin of divination, and defiance is like wickedness and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has rejected you as king. And Saul answered, Samuel, I have sinned. I have transgressed the Lord's command and your words because I was afraid of the people. I obeyed them. Now, therefore, please forgive my sin and return with me so I can worship the Lord. And Samuel replied to Saul, I will not return with you because you rejected the word of the Lord. The Lord has rejected you from being king over Israel. When Samuel turned to go, Saul grabbed the corner of his robe and it tore And Samuel said to him, The Lord has torn the kingship of Israel away from you today and has given it to your neighbor who is better than you. Furthermore, the Eternal One of Israel does not lie or change his mind, for he is not a man who changes his mind. And Saul said, I have sinned. Please honor me now before the elders of my people and before Israel. Come back with me so I can bow and worship to the Lord your God. Then Samuel went back following Saul, and Saul bowed down to the Lord. And Samuel said, bring me King Agag of Amalek. And Agag came to him trembling, for he thought certainly the bitterness of death has come. And Saul, Samuel declared, as your sword has made women childless, so your mother will be childless among women. And then he hacked Agag to pieces before the Lord at Gilgal. And Samuel went to Ramah, and Saul went up to his home in Gibeah of Saul, even to the day of his death. And Samuel never saw Saul again, and Samuel mourned for Saul, and the Lord regretted he had made Saul king over Israel. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God let me pray for us, Father God, as we read your word, it is a heavy word. it is a challenging word, and so Lord, we pray that you minister to us now that you, your spirit would speak to us, that we would know your word, and that your word would be planted deeply in our hearts, so that we would know and follow you all the days of our life. It's in Christ's name I pray. Amen. So Martin Luther was an Augustinian monk uh, during the early 16th, 16th century, and he is credited with starting the Protestant Reformation. That he the Protestant Reformation started when he took a piece of paper that listed 95 problems that were within the church. 95. And he took that list and he nailed it to the door of the church. And some of this, some of the things within this list included that you could buy your way into heaven some literally taught that you can buy your way into heaven. A soul into the coffer springs and a soul from purgatory springs is what the, what the salesman would say. And others would exclude, excuse moral failures and much more. But at the heart of the concern, the thing that made it to the top of the list of Martin Luther's 95 problems was this. And he, he quotes Jesus that when Jesus says the word repent, he was pointing out that the entire life of a Christian is one of repentance. That the entire life of a Christian is one of repentance. And in our story today, we have Saul's example for us. And that, in fact, as we are reading this passage from 1 Samuel 15, it's actually meant to be a mirror. That as we are looking at Saul, are we seeing ourselves? Because the reality is is that we need to repent of our false obedience. We need to repent of our false obedience because we are masters of partial obedience. We are masters of excusing ourselves, of dismissing our disobedience in an effort to pretend to be godly people. The key idea that what this passage is about is that obedience is better than. Than worship. Think about Micah 6 that Parker led us in earlier with the call to confession. It's rather mind-blowing that should, does God delight in worship? And like what, 10,000 rivers of anointed oil? Can you just imagine that right there? Just think about the picture that the prophet Micah has of worship right there, of sacrifices. But he has told you, O Lord, what is required of you. He has told you. Was required of you? To do justice, love kindness, and walk humbly with your God. The whole idea of, is that obedience is better than worship. And so as we come into this passage, uh, we're going to see something very quickly. But as we look at this passage, there are a few things that are actually very striking that grabbed our attention. And I want to gra- point one of these out for us first. That here is King Saul, and his reign was marked by wars and battles and violence. If you read one of the last verses of, of chapter 14, you read this in verse 52. The conflict with the Philistines was fierce all of Saul's days. So whenever Saul noticed any strong or valiant man, he enlisted him. And so when this is actually what Samuel warned about. When he pointed out that Israel, if you would have a king, he's going to take your best and strongest men and, and draft them into military service. That, and that's what's going on here. But there, that's because there are so many wars and battles that Saul is engaged of. And in here in chapter 15, it's, we're seeing a picture of the war with the Amalekites. And so just to think very specifically about the Amalekites for a moment. The Amalekites were historical enemies of Israel. So when Israel was in Egypt and they were enslaved there by Pharaoh and they were brought out of Egypt to come to the promised land, they were wandering through the wilderness and they're coming into the promised land, the Amalekites attacked them. But how they would go about attacking them is that they would not attack the the Israelites coming head on where your soldiers would be or the strong men. They would actually attack Israel from the rear, where the woman and the children were. And that's only one instance. But the p- picture that we actually have of the Amalekites throughout Scripture is that they were a people that were committing war crimes. And that, is, that needs to be understood as we come into this passage because this is why God is judging the Amalekites, that they are actually committing war crimes against th- People around them. And so Samuel's judgment in verse 33, he points out to King Agag that your sword has made women childless. Like he's, that's the judgment that here is a war criminal that's being put on trial and killed. And so the Lord is using his people to judge the wickedness and the war crimes of the Amalekites. And so that the, this entire people are complicit in that. And that's been going on for generations. That's why God commands Saul to attack the Amalekites and destroy everything that belongs to them. And as we hear this, this sounds very harsh. Let's be very honest. But this concept of war crimes is actually helpful to us to understand what is happening. Just imagine a national reg- regime today that would kill parents to enlist children in their armies. Or a region engaged in genocide for a century. This, these are, this is the thing of war crimes. And the point that we are seeing that a thread throughout this entire passage is that God takes sin seriously. That God takes evil seriously. And all of this is actually getting at Saul now. Because Saul has a choice. Is he going to obey God? Is he going to lead God, God's people in obedience to him? So what we actually see right now is that there's a picture for us of false obedience and true obedience. And so let's first think about Saul's false obedience. And Saul is told to kill all the Amalekites, but when he attacks the Amalekites, he spares King Agag. He takes him alive and takes him as prisoner. And yet he is told by God to destroy everyone and everything. Yet, when he comes and meets Samuel, Samuel says to him, like, what is the sound that I hear? You're insisting that you're, you are obeying God, but why am I hearing the mooing? Why am I hearing the bleating? Why am I hearing the sheep and the cattle and lambs and calves? And so what Samuel goes on, what Saul goes on to say, is like, hey, we spared these to make sacrifices. But what also... Here is that this is the best of what the Amalekites had. In other words, this is the spoils of war. That Saul is keeping the spoils of war. And so this is why God is sending Samuel to him. But when Samuel also discovers Saul, Saul's not where he's supposed to be. He, in fact, finds out that Saul makes a monument for himself. There's pride. Yet all along, Saul is insisting on obeying God. And this is why Samuel just cuts through the nonsense with the question, what is all this mooing that I hear? And so here's the first thing for us to know from this example here. This is the first thing to know about false obedience. That false obedience is full of excuses. It's full of, of excuses. And it's blame-shifting, And it's so easy. Blame shifting is part of our nature and our character due to our sinfulness. Like, in parents, we see this. That one of my sons does something to his brother. And without fail, I'll hear something like, but he hit me first. He hurt me. Or he, like this morning, he threw a pen at me. And it's likely the truth. Yes, he did throw something at you. And that needs to be dealt with. But at the same time, this is still blame shifting. This is still excuses, excuses. And guess what? Where do they learn that? They learned that from me. When you think about the consequences of sin in Genesis 3, the first consequence is Adam and Eve are hiding from God. But the second consequence is Adam says to God, this woman whom you've gave me, that is a picture of our hearts. And, like, I'll do this with Jennifer. Like, I'm sorry for being on edge. I did not sleep well last night whatsoever. But, like, or whatever it may be, it's an excuse, and I'm still being unkind or whatever else it may be. The point is, is that false obedience is full of excuses. And I want us to look at the excuses that Saul is offering to Samuel. Like, in verse 20, the first excuse that he offers is, look at what I have done. So Samuel comes to Saul and says, look at what you haven't done. And Saul's saying, well, look at what I did do. I have spared Agag, sure, but I've destroyed everything else. And so what Saul is actually saying is that this partial obedience, I obeyed you halfway. In Saul's mind, he's saying that's good enough. But how easy it is for us to excuse sin on the basis that we haven't sinned in other ways. Like, you may say, like, hey, I may have lusted, but I did not look at pornography. I may have lost my temper, but I did not hit anyone. I may have cursed in my mind, but at least I put a smile on my face. See, partial obedience equals disobedience. Partial obedience never legitimizes disobedience. So that's the first excuse that he has. Look what I have done. The second thing is, like, in verse 15 and also verse 21, where he... Saul is saying, everyone else is doing it. Everyone else is disobeying you. And he points out, look at what the soldiers have done. Don't single me out, we might say. Everyone else does it. I'm just simply the one who got caught. None of this is an excuse for sin. Because God actually holds each and every single one of us accountable for our own thoughts and our actions. God is the standard for us, not the world, not our friends, only God. That we must take our standards from God. We don't get to compare ourselves with other people to be the, our standard for righteousness. Our standard is actually God Himself. So, the third excuse that He offers in verse 15 is that Saul says, it's, This seemed like a good idea at the time, it seemed sensible that killing all those animals would have been a waste. So I decided to put them to better use. It simply made sense. And so surely, like Saul's thinking, you can see that it's the best thing to do given the circumstances. And so what Saul is, saying, is actually appealing to is common sense over God's word. And the point is that God's word will not make sense to us so many times. That's because it's God's word. And it's actually a test of faith for us to step out and actually obey God's word even when it does not make sense. Because we need to submit to God's word and his ways instead of our own. So that's the third excuse. Another excuse that he offers in verse 21. And again, this is all with like false obedience. Partial obedience. But in verse 21, he says, I did it for God. Verse 21. I want to worship and the Lord. And so it technically may be a sin. And this is what Saul's thinking. It technically may be a sin, but at least my motives were good. I did it for God. So this is like, sp- sp- to make it almost somewhat trivial, breaking the speed limit in order to be, in order to not be late for a church meeting. Or where you exaggerate, stories within your own testimony to sound more impressive this idea of doing things for God does not legitimize disobeying God because all sin is actually against him God does not need us to break his laws in order to be glorified or in order to do his work or his will in this world and so here is Saul and he's offering this excuse of like I did it for you then here's the last excuse that he offers, and it's in verse 24, that where he makes it very clear that, I, that Saul was afraid of other people. That yeah, he was afraid of other people, that he was afraid of the troops, that he was afraid of the Israelites. Was he really? That could be, good. That could be a very good question. Perhaps that's just an excuse. Maybe he's just blame-shifting. But the reality is, is that our fear of man is a very powerful motivator in our life. Think about peer pressure. Like this idea of being afraid of other people is very powerful. But fear of others is no justification for sin. And Jesus makes this very clear in Matthew 10, 28. Do not be afraid of those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul point right there. It's like, what can other people do to you? They can't kill your soul, but they can hurt your physical body, sure, but they can't kill your soul. Rather, be afraid of the one who can destroy both body and soul in hell. And so what Jesus is actually saying, don't be afraid of man, but actually cultivate the fear of God. See, this fear of people is actually a very common reason why we sin. It's a very powerful reason for our sin. And we fear the rejection of other people because we actually crave their acceptance. That we'll do whatever it takes in order to fit in and be liked and be accepted or affirmed by them. That we are even willing to do all that yet being excluded from God. Yet being rejected by him and condemned by him. We're willing to please others and be afraid of others instead of pleasing God. And so here we see some of the excuses that Saul is using. But and all these excuses actually dismiss the seriousness of sin. And so when we use excuses in our lives, we explain it away. Now, even when we are, are sharing stories with one another and we seek to excuse our sin, we can actually easily try to encourage one another and be like, oh, I've done that too. And that's very true. We've all done that too. But when we do that, that's actually offering cheap grace. And, th- and here's the thing. Here's the thing. Ex- when we offer excuses or we diminish things or we dismiss any of that, that, that's not grace. We can think that in our mind, oh, I'm simply being gracious, but that's not Grace whatsoever. And so, the real problem that underlies all these excuses that I kind of just highlighted here is the problem is is that we are the ones who put ourselves in the position of deciding right or wrong, what matters and what does not. That we judge other people for their failings and excuse our own. That we're the ones who play God and that we think we know better than Him. So, we're acting as if we are the judge. Of the world and other people. This is what we're seeing here in Saul's partial obedience. But before I get to true obedience, how, here's something else that, to, that we need to consider here that's really striking, it's shocking. That as I read this passage, there's a, there, it's mentioned twice, and you get to this verse and you're like, how in the world, why is this in the Bible? And we, re- we began there and we also ended there. And this is what we read. That God regretted making Saul king. So what, what, what do we do with this? How should we understand this? And you'll find this language of God regretting elsewhere. You find it actually with Noah's flood in Genesis 6.6. 6. And there's a theological answer to this and we'll get there but the theological answer is what we can what we often do with theology is we actually put god in a box and god is an unboxable god you can't put god in a box and so we'll come back to the theology answer but We also need to understand something about this passage, because here's this verse that God regretted making Saul king. The point is, is that sin is serious business. That disobedience is serious, and it saddens the Lord. It breaks His heart. That here's God, and He weeps over sin. That God weeps over your sin. We see this in the life of Christ. That with Jesus, He's talking to the rich young ruler, and the rich young ruler is there with all his um, swagger and he's thinking to himself that, hey, I have perfectly kept the law of God. And he walks away from, God, from Jesus and Jesus is looking at him and he is very sad that here's a man walking away from the Lord. See, God weeps over our sin. And so here, one commentator, Dale Ralph Davis writes this, it is a tragedy because Saul has refused to be God's disciple. And this grieves God. He is not, God is not a you win some or you lose some God. Nonchalance is never listed as an attribute of God. And so this is where we look at Luke 15, that when there's a lost coin, what does God do? That when there's a lost sheep, What does God do? That God is one who will leave the ninety-nine to go look after the one. That God is the one, and think about the prodigal son, that here's a God who delights in the fact that people repent and follow him. All of heaven breaks out in celebration. So when this person walks away from the Lord, there's grief. It's there's sadness. And so some actually look at this verse and they think that here's a picture of God changing your mind, just like you or I would change our mind. And in fact, this was a big trend, like 20 some years ago. Openness theology, open theism, and so forth. And it's actually cruel and unbiblical. That's not in step with what we know about God's character. Even in this chapter, like jumping ahead to verse 26, that... 26, 29. But specifically, it's like Samuel points out that the eternal one of Israel does not lie or change his mind, for he is not a man who changes his mind. And so here we be- we're beginning to see a theological answer, but the point is, sin grieves the Lord. And the theological answer is that the human writers are using human ideas and human characteristics to describe God. That's simply, it's called anthropomorphisms. It's using human ideas to describe God because here's God. He is noble, yet he's unknowable. That he's comprehensible, yet he's incomprehensible. That, and so the point is for us to know that our sin grieves the Lord, that our partial obedience is actually disobedience and it breaks the Lord's heart. That your excuse making, my, my blame shifting, breaks the Lord's heart and brings tears to our Lord. And so all of this is getting at the question of what does true obedience look like? What does true obedience look like? Very briefly, there's four things. And well, first off, that true obedience involves the whole heart, the whole person. That later in the next chapter, Samuel is sent to meet little David, and we read that we th- we read this verse that man looks on the outside, but God is the one who looks at the whole heart, and that this wholehearted obedience should lead to a life of integrity. This is Micah six. This is even Psalm twenty four. Who can ascend to the hill of the Lord? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, so that. True obedience involves the whole heart. Number two is that true obedience ends excuses. True obedience ends excuses. That we face up to our guilt. We face up to our responsibility rather than offering excuses for our sin. So that's an end to excuses. Excuses. Third thing is that there's a movement towards God. And this is getting at repentance here where we are turning away from sin and turning to God. And this is more than being frustrated with yourself and it's more than being remorseful. It's actually dealing with a concern for God's reputation over yourself. It is a God word in orientation. And so when someone leaves When someone speaks about their shame or frustration but leaves God out of the picture, that's actually an indicator there's not true heartfelt obedience. So true obedience is movement towards God. And fourthly, that true obedience is a movement that results in action. That it's this idea, again, of repentance. That it's not just uh, turning away from sin and to God. It's actually putting sin away in your life and clinging to the ways of God. It's, there's a change of life. There's a transformation because you're following Jesus together. But all this gets at the question of how is this true obedience possible? How is this true obedience possible? And this is, think about the question of the source of true obedience. And there's this wonderful passage in John 8. It's an incredible picture where a woman is caught in adultery. And she is thrown before Jesus. And there are people around Jesus, they're literally using this woman as a pawn. They're using her as a pawn to trick Jesus, that either Jesus upholds the law of Moses and will be attacked and killed by the Romans on the spot, because there's a garrison right behind him, or he will reject the law of Moses and he will lose his popular following among the Israelites. It's a trap. The religious leaders are using the woman to tra- trap Jesus. And so the question, and like the The question to Jesus is that the law of Moses says this woman who's caught in adultery should be stoned. What do you say? And Jesus, who's brilliant, he doesn't answer the question. He doesn't answer the question. To the point where people are rather impatient with him. And so they ask him again. And this is what he says to the crowd. That he who is without sin should throw the first stone. Just to highlight this. Who's the one without sin in that passage? It's Jesus. Is he picking up the stone at that point? He's not. And so, but when you read the wonderful details that slowly, beginning with the older people, people left until it was just Jesus and the woman. And he asks her a question at that, that point, has anyone condemned you? And the woman says, no, no one, my Lord. And he replies to this and says, neither do I go and sin no more. And here's the logic to the gospel. There's no condemnation and that leads to obedience. No condemnation leads to obedience. Forgiveness leads to obedience. Love leads to obedience. Romans 2.4, do you not know that the kindness of God is meant to lead to obedience? And so, what we do is we actually flip that around. That we say, obedience leads to condemnation. Obedience. (laughs) Obedience. See what I did there? Leads to forgiveness. Obedience leads to no condemnation. Obedience leads to love. And to be very clear, that's not the gospel. The source of true obedience is God's love for you in and through Jesus Christ. That Jesus died upon the cross for your sins. That he died for you. That he went to the cross with your name in mind. He forgave you and he gives you a new reputation. And there's absolutely nothing that you can do to cause, to cause God to love you any less. Because he knows you inside and out. And so as a result of that absolute, sure love, you can stop pretending. You can stop making excuses. You can stop blaming. You can now own your sin. You can admit it. You can move towards God in repentance. And that's when you also experience the healing that is already yours because there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. It's then you'll be free. It's then you'll know the full experience of the forgiveness that's yours because there's no condemnation. So the source of this true obedience is God's kindness because God's kindness is meant to lead to our obedience. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your good word. As we consider your word, it's hard, it's shocking, and it's true. It's lovely. It's beautiful. You are... Our Heavenly Father who loves us and who forgives us and your kindness is meant to lead us to obedience, that there's truly nothing that we can do to earn your love. There's nothing that we can do for you to reject us because you love us and you are faithful to us. So, Father, we pray that you'll give us hearts of obedience, that we would be working out the salvation that you have given us in Jesus Christ. So, Father, we pray... We pray this, we ask this for your Holy Spirit to do your wonderful work in our lives. In Christ's name I pray, amen.